you know, if you want to make a change in an organization of 100, right, you can go and talk to each of your 100 people. But if you instead, and that takes time, if you instead reach out to your 10 to 15 critical connectors, you bring them in, you say, hey, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? Let's shape this together. You know, let's, let's make it something you can support and believe in. Are you on board? You do that work. Then they, they do a lion's share of the work of bringing along the other 85 to 90 people in the organization. Hi, and welcome to Dreams with Deadlines, a podcast where you'll hear real stories of trials and victories in business. I'm Jenny Harold, VP of Product Marketing at GTM Hub. Our mission is to prevent organizational hypocrisy. Inspired by the proven objectives and key results goal-setting methodology, GTM Hub offers the most flexible results management system for mission-driven organizations. Check us out at gtmhub.com to learn more. In this episode, I'm joined by Maya Townsend. Maya is the founder and lead consultant of Partnering Resources. Her practice is grounded in knowledge of organizational networks, the complex, interrelated, and often messy webs of relationships that drive all organizational activity. We discuss the value of organizational network analysis, the pros and cons of doing reorgs, the power of critical connectors, those hubs, gatekeepers, and pulse takers, and more. Let's jump in. All right. So today I have Maya Townsend on the horn with me. I'm really excited to talk with you about your work, what you know about networks. That's the name of the game today. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here with you. So first question is, I wish that everyone in the world knew who we were, or maybe not, because I don't want to be famous. I'd rather have the money if you were (laughs) to tell me (laughs) rich or famous. I'd be like, can Mm -hmm. I just be rich without the famous? Mm -hmm. But people don't know us. So can you just share with our audience like who you are, a bit of, of how you arrived to where you are today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So my name is Maya Townsend, and I have been doing work on organization development and change for about 25 years now. And wow. how I got into the work of networks, actually, is that way back when people in my field used to talk about the informal network, because there was this awareness that things happen underneath the surface. And that that is really important and can influence what happens in an organization. But we didn't really know how to visualize it. We didn't know what it meant. And so we called it the informal organization. And then came there here came from academia, actually, this study of networks, which place images. It's a way to visualize the informal network. And it took a little while to make the transition because at first it was, you know, very academic and using things like eigenvector, you know, centrality that nobody in the business world cares about. But it did arrive and I got involved in it as a way to help people illuminate and understand this hidden part of the organization that's so influential. So to this point, like something that I think I was just illuminated by in your work is you've been able to really dissect the influence of this network. Because I think something that I gleaned from you last time, and we agree, the power is not in the hierarchy. That's not where work gets done. It it happens in the network or sometimes people will say cross-functional teams or lateral or fusion teams, whatever you call it. It's not being done by the hierarchy. And something that you told me, which I was like, wait a second, 
10 to 15% of this network have influence over the whole. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of discuss yeah. what? what? <laughs> yeah, I know. What? What? How did we not know this? What this do you so mean boring. 10 to 15%? Like what? Yeah. Yeah. So, so just first the background, which is that every single organization has a network. It's what we do as human beings. We create instinctually the relationships that we need in order to get our job done. And mm-hmm. so if you were to you know, visualize all those connections, you'd have a network map, you know, a lot of dots representing the people and then the lines representing the relationships. And what we know from studying many, many, many network maps is that there's a common pattern, which is that in any network, about 10 to 15 percent of the nodes or the people have disproportionate influence over the whole. So, yeah, yeah. So in every organization, we have these 10 to 15 percent who tend to be trusted by their peers, who tend to be positioned in the network so that they have a broader reach. They can, you know, get to more people than others. And so they can, you know, they can spread the word. They can make things happen in ways that others cannot. In within this network, so what I thought was really fascinating by your work is you've been able to identify the critical nodes, these mm-hmm. disproportionate influencers, if you will, that that yeah. are kind of like the most, in, not important, but definitely like the connective tissue of this, what are these different types? Because when you shared it with me for the first time, I remember thinking, and we talked about this earlier, which one am am I? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) am I one and which one, right? Yeah, yeah, that's everyone's question, right? Is am I one and how do I get to be one? And we can talk about that. But basically there's three types um, in the methodology that I use and people are, people talk about them in different ways. So the the types show up over and over again, but people have some different words for them. And I use the names that came from Karen Stevenson, um, who was my first mentor in the network world. And she does a lot of work. Um, She's actually a physicist, anthropologist, mathematician, one of those crazy genius people who can do anything. What she found and, you know, what subsequently shows up in networks is that there's three types. The first type is called the hub. And this is the one that people are probably most aware of. So the hub is someone who has just more connections than anyone else. So this tends to be a person who is interested, who tends to be curious, who tends to want to gather information. And sometimes that information can be gossip. So it can be like who's dating who and what's going on and all that. But sometimes it's expertise, it's information about, you know, how to get things done in the, in the organization or information about a client or information about one of the products. So there are different kinds. But the mm. point is, is that person has more connections really than just about anyone else. So that's the hub. The next type is the gatekeeper. And what the gatekeepers do is they control the flow of information. So they are basically standing between a group of people and the rest of the organization. And the reason why they are important, um, particularly during change or strategy implementation, is that without them opening that gate, information can't get through where it needs to get through. Mm. And sometimes that's, that's a really helpful move. So when someone is doing that, actually, it can protect an organization from distraction. It can protect them from challenges going on in the outside world, but it can also be harmful. 
when you're trying to align an organization. And then third kind is the pulse taker. And the pulse takers are the quiet ones. They're the ones are, that are hardest to just, you know, say, oh, that's you. Because they tend to find the back channels. So they don't necessarily have the most connections, but they have the quickest ways to navigate the network. They've found the most efficient ways to get the information that they need. And so they're, they're a little bit of your quiet behind the scenes operators. So those are the three types, hubs, gatekeepers, and pulse takers. So then the question is, I think for a lot of leaders who are probably listening to this podcast, how do I find these beings? How mm-hmm. do I know who is leveraging this disproportionate amount of influence? Because if I can find them, right, it would stand to reason. I find them, I elevate them, whatever it is that I'm trying to change. And if I can get them in my corner, Mm-hmm. then naturally the rest of the organization would follow. And there's great value in that. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think the easiest way is probably to do a network study. And what those look like is it's a, you know, a web-based survey and people fill it out. They talk about, you know, who do they go to for specific things? And then that comes back and gets fed into a network map that gives an incredible amount of information about how knowledge spreads through the organization where change happens quickly, where it happens slowly, where collaboration is working and where it doesn't. So that's really helpful. If people don't have the funds to engage in one of those surveys, you know, the easiest way to do it is just to walk around the organization, start to ask people who's really trusted in your area. Mm. And the names that come up over and over again, you know, are probably your hubs. So that is one so there's there's the more you know complete way to do it, and then there's the more you know quick and bootstrap way to do it. The one thing that you shouldn't do, however, is just do it out of your brain. So I have, <laughs> I let me explain what I mean by that. <laughs> so I have a friend who was a VP of HR at a global information company, and what she said to her you know executive leader, she said, "Tell me the top twenty most influential people in your organization." And they said, "Yeah, we got this. Here you go." So they made the list other 20 people. Then they did a formal network survey. And what happened when they got the top 20 validated through the network survey, there were only five overlaps on the two. Oh my goodness. So basically the executives missed the boat. And the reason they missed the boat is that they only had line of sight into their direct reports and maybe a little bit into the next level down. Mm. Okay. So, Hey, if you're in an organization of 20 people, you can probably do it. But if you're in a larger organization, you just don't know. You don't have the reach as an executive to understand who all those influencers are. I mean, that makes a ton of sense. I, we don't know. We don't know. So ask. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's simple. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So get a Yeah. Get a Get a bigger picture. And I think also that's so important because so often leaders, you know, they, they just have limited information. So I remember, you know, I did this um, a network study with a global agricultural organization, and they were shocked when they looked at the map, because what they noticed is that they weren't connecting where they thought they were connecting, and that they had some areas that were very strong. For example, there was a lot of activity around problem solving in their organization, but their strategic goal for the year was to be innovative. And to try new things. Oh, wow. And their innovation network was very, very sparse. Nothing was happening there. 
And they didn't realize that until they actually saw the images and then were able to say, okay, we have a problem. We have to do something about this. That is, can you imagine the, I can imagine the value to that organization for Mm -hmm. having that kind of insight because then the follow on is, well, we can do something about it because we know where the issues are. Exactly. Exactly. And I also really like this because, you know, looking at maps really engages the problem solving parts of people's brains. What we can do is we get a map, we look at it together, and we start thinking about where do the connections need to be. So I think the executives I've worked with really appreciate it because it gives them something concrete to work with. It's not often when we're talking about people, things involving people, it's a, you know, a lot of the gut, gut feeling, you know, what right. is, you know, what does our gut tell us? And this, we have something beyond our gut to help us. And we bring the gut into it, but we've got some concrete data to work with. Something I was curious about, because, mm-hmm. I mean, you work with these networks, but obviously we can't discount the fact that there are hierarchies. This is something that exists. And oftentimes to fix, quote unquote, uh, communication issues or gaps, the yeah. inevitable, we're going to reorg becomes a thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts based on your experience set on the impact of the reorg to the organization to that network that already exists? Is it damaging? Does it take time to recover? Does it actually benefit the organization to make such a drastic change? Because in enterprises, that often happens. They're like, well, we'll just blend these four organizations together and now call it this. And we'll cut mm-hmm. this one over here. And then we'll insert, we'll buy, we'll do M&A so we can get the competency here and we'll slot them over there. And yeah. it, it's just, it, at least on the worker level, it felt crazy. But I'm curious yeah. from a scientific level uh, and a leadership mm-hmm. level, a strategic one that you're looking at, what is it looking like from your vantage point? Yeah, good question. So I have to say I'm about 50-50 on reorgs. I think there's something about them that is incredibly fulfilling for leaders. So you go into a room, you do all the hard work of thinking through how to rearrange the boxes and what makes, you know, logical, rational sense. And then you got it and you feel like you've accomplished something. But then what happens is they introduce that to the organization and people say, yeah, sure, whatever. But they continue to use the relationships that they've always used. Uh And that's one of the biggest challenges I see, right? So they've redrawn the boxes on a piece of paper. Maybe they've changed a few of the reporting relationships, but they haven't rewired the networks. The networks are still doing what they did before. And sometimes those work across purposes, right? There's supposed to be a new department over here that's focused on customer experience. However, the old folks who dealt with customer experience had really strong relationships. They trust each other. They know how each other works. So when there's a problem, they're not going to their new team. They're going to the old team, the people that mm. they really trust. So when reorgs really do work is when there is time spent to think, thinking about how do we help align the network with our new organizational chart. And so there's where I want to dig a little bit deeper. How do we do that, right? Because you've mentioned to me before that strategy implementation does not happen through the hierarchy. It happens through that network. Yes. How do we make that connection? How do we advise our leaders? Like, not that there's a silver bullet in any of this, but here are the kind of basic framework or the guide, if you will, of things that you need to be thinking about so that you can express that strategy so it gets implemented and executed by this group of people that you've hired to do that awesome work? So I think what there has to be is, first of all, there has to be two images at hand when you're doing a reorg. So you need your organizational chart. You also need your network map. 
Mm-hmm. And so when making those decisions, the conversation has to look at, there has to be analysis of what is this doing to our network? So that's the first piece of it. The second piece is that once um, the organization, the leaders have decided there needs to be a change, is to think about how to help that network align. And often the way to do that is to find those critical connectors. We talked about the hubs, the gatekeepers, the pulse takers, and to design concrete ways for them to connect. And that could be, you know, um, formal projects that they're on, that could be reward, you know, for them working on a joint goal, but some way to really encourage that relationship. And also by picking the critical connectors is that if you get them connected, what they'll tend to do is pull their networks with them. Mm. So it really is about finding the influencers, of, if you will, to yes. kind of buy in to what that change is and commit yes. to it in a way. Yeah. And then by exactly. doing that, they sell it to everyone else for you. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best things to do is get those influencers on board. So I work with a lot of organizations on change. And what we talk about in change is, you know, if you want to make a change in an organization of 100, right? You can go and talk to each of your 100 people. But if you instead, and that takes time, if you instead reach out to your 10 to 15 critical connectors, you bring them in, you say, hey, here's what we're thinking. What do you think? Let's shape this together. You know, let's let's make it something you can support and believe in. Are you on board? You do that work. Then they, they do a lion's share of the work of bringing along the other 85 to 90 people in the organization. Right. Now, here's a fun thing that I, when I was yeah. reading through some of your, your work, there's going to be the resistors. Oh, yeah. Right. And sometimes those resistors have also this disproportionate influence over Absolutely. the whole. Absolutely. Absolutely. Opposite direction of where you want to go for whatever reason, whatever it mm-hmm. is that is driving them to do what they're doing. And I have heard time and time again where leaders are like, what do we do with this? This is toxic. Mm-hmm. What do you have to say to that? Like, is that a different type of critical connector? Is it actually one of the connectors you've highlighted and they just happen to be using it for, yeah. I don't know, not for uh, forces of evil. I, I hate to put <laughs> it that way. That's too strong. Yeah. But because they actually don't believe in what you're doing. They think it's bad for the business and they're trying to prevent in their own way from mm-hmm. bad things happening. It, it, I'm trying to think positively here that that's what's happening in their brain. I don't know. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. And I actually want to pick up on that because I do think that resistors get a bad rap in organizations, right? We often scapegoat them. You know, they're the problem. If they would just shut up and go away, everything would be We can move on. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But I I actually think that nobody comes out of the womb wanting to be a resistor. Nobody, you know, is born saying, I'm going to mess up the lives of the people around me, right? They are resisting for a reason. There's something there that's missing. Mm. And actually often listening to those people, especially if they're, if they're critical connectors, because they do have so much influence, is really important because they might be identifying something you're missing. Mm. And I've, I've actually seen this happen. So I work with a lot of organizations where they are having conflict. And often when there's a pause to really listen to what that resistor is saying, we can get to the idea that, well, actually, they're not resisting the whole idea. They're resisting the timeline because their group wow. has a few other deadlines right there. And they're afraid they're not going to make it happen. 
or they happen to know from their direct relationship with a certain customer that the customer is going in a different direction. And they're afraid that the change is going to alienate customers like this one. So, so, you know, what, what I think, especially if they're critical connectors, the thing to do is bring them in and really, really listen to what they have to say and find where's the truth in it? Where's the part that rings true? And then engage them. Let's fix this together. Let's figure out what we can do to redesign this so it works. Now, that's probably, I would say, 99% of resistors. Every now and then you get one that's truly, truly toxic. And I have mm. worked with people who, you know, have, it, it's been beyond just resistance. There's, you know, something personal that's being lived. And I think that's a moment for employee assistance program. You know, there's, there's, there's a different intervention there. Right. Um, but, right. That I, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. But, but for the 99%, I think the challenge in organizations and the invitation is not to write them off, is to invite them in and figure out how they can be enlisted in making this change better. Well, yeah, because I mean, on the one hand, what if the resistor is correct, that you could be damaging a part of the business unknowingly, and that's why they are putting up, you know, the the break. Exactly. Exactly. the other is, if you can accommodate for that, because I mean, not necessarily that you have to you know, accommodate their whims or whatnot. But if Mm -hmm. you take that into account, I can imagine you may be able to turn the tides on that person's opinion. And again, if they are one of those critical connectors, that influencer, you won someone over and that wins you multitudes beyond that. They're a multiplier. Exactly. To Uh, have someone say, I didn't, I wasn't on board. Right. But then I sat down and we talked it through and I changed my mind. Mm. That is powerful. Very powerful. Really powerful. Very, yeah. very powerful. Very cool. So mm-hmm. something that I think, I mean, we're on the same page here because you're, you're talking to leaders. We're talking to leaders. The name of the game is strategy. That's what we do. That's the yeah. job is you define the direction. And something that you had mentioned, and it's, I don't know why I was like, why is this so profound? But it is that strategy and networks need to be aligned. Yes. And oftentimes they're not. What happens, mm-hmm. it seems, and I, I, I see this sometimes myself, is we'll create the strategy and we look at everyone, we say, go. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't happen. <laughs> and then yeah. we're like, why? Mm-hmm. And, it, and what you explained to me is, that, Jenny, the, the network wasn't in place to make it happen. Yeah. Can you talk me through our, our audience as well? Like, what does that actually mean? Because I get it. And I was mm-hmm. like really excited about this idea when you explained it. I mm-hmm. want hopefully our audience to be just excited. I'm like, wait, I do, this is my job. I create strategy. But the other part of the job is to mobilize this force. I need mm-hmm. to recraft the network and yeah. fit that together. Can you talk us yeah, through like, sure. what does that look like? And maybe you have some examples of, of mm-hmm. clients you've yeah. worked with to get there. Yeah. So I can tell you about um, a client that is a quasi-governmental agency. And they uh, had they had a very old-fashioned system. They did a lot of stuff manually, paper. And so what they decided is they needed to modernize. So they were going to replace their old computer system, which was written in COBOL. Nice. Um, yeah, COBOL. Uh, and they they ha- wanted to bring in something new to replace that. Uh, and this was critical because they were working with financial data and their competitors 
So, you know, if you've got a, a Fidelity account or a TIA CREF account and you want to check your retirement, you just go on the website and there it tells you exactly how much you have. So with this organization, what would happen is if you wanted your balance, you would call them up and say, hey, what's my balance? And they'd say, we'll get back to you in two weeks with that. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. So not very competitive, right? <laughs> um, and why would people stay if it takes them two weeks to find out what their balance is? Wow. Um, so they needed to do this project. They needed to do it. And we use the networks in a number of ways to help align the strategy. But one of the first things I want to talk about is where the network and the strategy weren't aligned. Mm -hmm. So they needed their infrastructure department to really provide the backbone. So they were providing, you know, the switches, the routers, everything on which this new system was going to be built. And they were just being ridiculously slow. They weren't mm -hmm. innovating. And you know, the buzz started to be, you know, infrastructure, you know, maybe they're just not that good. Maybe they're mm -hmm. not, you know. Okay, so then we looked at the network map. And what we found on the network map is that they had a classic gatekeeper situation. And that, mm-hmm, yep, it was actually their head of department um, was acting as a gatekeeper. And what was happening is that it turns out he really, really liked getting his hands in and solving oh. technical problems. So when something came up, everyone in his organization had learned that he wants to be involved. So they would say, come on in, we're doing this. So he was soon involved in like 50 different projects. And of course, he couldn't handle all of those. So he was also becoming a bottleneck. So what happened, and this was a classic pattern, this has been happening for years, but it came to a head with this strategy. And so there was some interventionists sitting down with him saying, look, this, you can't keep this up. And to be honest, upon talking to him, he was a little relieved because he wasn't sleeping very much. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and he was involved in all these projects and it was stressing him out. <laughs> and so what it really did is it gave him an excuse to say, okay, I don't need to be involved in everything. Let me identify the few things I really do want to be part of and then let the organization go. And it, it took some retraining because the people in his organization were trained to come to him. And so he had to get strong at saying, nope, I don't need to be involved. I trust you. You do it. Okay. So that's just one example, which is, which is a fun one. He was such a dear, a dear, dear man. Um, very smart. But, you know, he was causing himself a lot of problems. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to unpack there about this person, mm -hmm. but I, I don't think we should go there. <laughs> yeah. I, I have a feeling that a lot of people will listen to this and they'll say to themselves, wait a second, am I that person? Or, or I can identify exactly who that might be. Yes. So yes. That's such a difficult transition, right? Between management and leadership where everyone talks mm -hmm. about what's the difference. It's well, when you step up to management, like you're not graded on the work that you produce. It's what is your team producing? Right. And then leaders, you know, you're kind of great as anyone following you. Mm -hmm. That's right. So interesting. And often you're promoted because you were good at the technical stuff. I, mean, I think particularly good. in IT and engineering fields, For you sure. get promoted because you're good at the technical and then you're in a role where you don't get to do the technical anymore. Until and you kind of miss it. Until, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. right. Mm -hmm. I think what is really interesting uh, about some of your work is you, you mentioned in some of your writing, I, I was reading the road to successful change is lined with mm -hmm. trade-offs. And I think it's really interesting because I've heard other like leadership coaches say, 
No, what you need to do is sell a good story. You need to sell a good story and convince your folks that the change is right. And if you phrase it as thus, then you're golden. And what I found what's interesting in your writing is like, you're saying, no, don't do that. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> like that yeah. won't be as effective. Can you can you help like yeah. me understand where did you, firstly, like this is a very interesting point of view. It cu- runs counter to a lot of mm-hmm. executive leadership coaches where people are, are saying like, you need to be a really strong communicator. You need to bring people along with you in the vision. You need to, if you want change to happen, you need to sell them a good story. And you're like, mm-hmm. uh, no, don't convince them. Yep. Do yep. something different. What's that other option? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where this article came out of is uh, my co-author, Elizabeth Doty, and I uh, have both been consulting around the same amount of time, about 25 years. And we both were coming up against a situation where we were involved as consultants in change projects that we thought were brilliant. You know, the mm. leaders did a brilliant job. And in my case, those um, changes usually had to do with increased collaboration, increased transparency, breaking down silos. And then what we both had is the experience of then those changes being undone. And it was incredibly frustrating, right? You do a great project, you leave the organization, and then you look back a year later and it's all gone. And sometimes the organization's worse than before. So we started thinking, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Why does really good change get undone? And what we got to is that a lot of times the resistance wasn't dealt with. And a lot of times the resistance was either at the peer level or the boss level. What happens in organizations yeah, is that I think executives, especially, they're so busy. If a colleague says, I'm going to do this, people say, yeah, 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 go ahead, go do it as long as it doesn't affect me. But what they don't understand is that often change does affect them. So, for example, I'm thinking mm. of I worked at a research one institution, academia, and they were they were doing increased transparency and collaboration, which meant they were reporting differently. They were communicating with their customers differently. And, you know, initially that was fine, but eventually there became pushback because then the customers started expecting that kind of transparency and collaboration with the other areas. And the other areas didn't, didn't want to do that. And they didn't exactly. get it. Right. Mm. And it was kind of making them look bad. And so what happened is there was an ouster and the woman who led the change was actually booted from the organization. And this has happened a number of times that I've seen this, right? You do great work. Your peers eventually say, nope, we don't like this. And you get booted. Hmm. So where Elizabeth and I went with this article is saying, you know what? It's not enough to sell a change. It's not enough to tell a good story. What we really need to do when we're embarking on a change is we need to engage people in a real way. We need to talk about what are the trade-offs? What are the downsides? What are we going to have to give up when we do this? Because in every change, no matter how good it is, you give up something. So the example is even if you just have a baby, right? You've wanted this baby forever. You're finally pregnant. You finally give birth. You've got a baby. Hooray. And suddenly you never sleep through the night again (laughs) for like four years. So, you know, even a wonderful, happy change, like having a baby has a downside, but we tend not to talk about those downsides. We rush right in and then down the line, people realize, "Uh uh-oh, I wasn't ready for this and I don't like this and let's scale it back. Let's undo it. So, you know, that's, I, I think it's about having those honest conversations before you get too far down the line, before you get an organization excited, before like the research one institution I told you about. People really in the organization, they 
they really got to like it. They liked the transparency. They liked the collaboration. And then their replacement was worse than their previous one. And it became a much more difficult place to work. Right. So we're going to spend some time talking about the leadership run then, because I think this is a fascinating place to be. You mentioned in one of the pieces that you had sent me that you can use network mats for setting these leadership agendas. I think that's wonderful. And someone who was being helped by you and your colleagues through a transition was asking, like, what kind of leadership does this Mm -hmm. network need? I thought that was a really interesting question. Can you kind of expound on the response to this person, or I mean, if you can extend to any leader when they're thinking about, okay, I need to not think about my hierarchy. I need to think about my network. I'm a leader. How do I lead with that new paradigm? uh, Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This was, this was again, you know, some of my favorite conversations and this is again with an international company and what they wanted to do is they wanted to become a truly global organization. They had been very regionally oriented and they were, uh, they were repeating a lot of effort, right? So Mm -hmm. Singapore would invent something. And then two months later, Sao Paulo would invent the same thing. So it was redundant. They weren't learning from each other. They wanted to change that. And so what we did is we did the network maps and I sat down with each of the leaders. And what we did is we said, okay, what are your goals for the year? And then how well equipped is this network to achieve those goals? Where are Mm -hmm. the gaps? Where is this network not well equipped? And where are you? What kind of leadership then does this network need from you in order to get there? So there was one woman who, who I wrote about in that article who had come, she was new, fairly new to the organization. And she still felt like she had to prove herself. She was about a year in, but she still felt a little insecure. And so what her approach had been is to become an expert within the network. And so we looked at her networks and said, yeah, actually, there she is. She was right in the center of expertise. People came to her. She was well-regarded. But um, her charge for the next year was problem solving. They needed to solve some really critical issues and they needed to be able to do it rapidly. Mm. Their problem solving network, very sparse, not a lot of activity. And she was very much at the periphery. So what we decided, what she decided is that what well, she needed to let go. She didn't have to worry about expertise anymore. She had that covered. What she instead needed to do was to engage more people in the problem-solving conversations, to encourage people to solve problems, to connect the critical connectors within the network who were doing that, and also position herself so that she could be that intermediary helping connect people who need to be connected. So it was a really nice way for her to think differently and think about you know, concretely what kind of leadership was needed by her group. Again, like I feel like everyone should do a network analysis of their business <laughs> because it's so illuminating, not only mm-hmm. for the organization and understanding if there's any stragglers or outliers, who those critical connectors are, but also for senior leaders to understand where they fit, where mm-hmm. they are strongest, what they need to do differently so that they can effectively lead and manage the networks in which hold their charge. I think- there's lots yeah. of value here. I can see why why you've got to work on, on some really amazing problems because these are certainly big problems to solve. Now that said, if you were to look back at the 25 years of work that you've done and kind of pinpoint uh, you know one or two 
different insights where it kind of shaped your current thinking about organizations, organizational management change, Mm. leadership and strategy deployment. What would you say are like these two kind of insights that really shaped your thinking and how you approach your work, how you've approached Mm -hmm. your research? Because I feel like that's true for a lot of people. You have these axioms that you've kind of developed and you lean upon. So, yeah, I I will tell you there's three that come to mind. I'll tell you about two of them. So the first one happened about maybe 15 years ago now, and it was a very different kind of project. It was in Austin, Texas. And what we were doing is we were looking at the adolescent healthcare system. And what we did is we brought a number of different stakeholder groups in the room. So we had service providers, we had parents, we had funders, and we were lucky enough to get youth in the room. You know, initially they, they were came dragging, you know, kicking and screaming, right? They didn't really want to be there. But we did this activity where they started to map. And it was a bit of a network map. It was a little different um, than a network map, but they started to map their experience. And what became clear, a few things first became clear. The first is that by the time they were done mapping, these youth were so confident and they got up and they shared uh, and it was beautiful. And the service providers were rapidly taking us, like furiously taking us, because what they learned from that is that they were designing for youth without really listening to youth's world and what was happening with them. So a lot of the services that were being designed were completely missing the mark because mm. they weren't taking into account youth reality. And so this is one of those big moments of like, oh my gosh, how often does this happen in the world? where we are designing for a group, we are doing something on behalf of another and completely missing the mark because we're not deeply listening to them. So that became something that I try now to do. And partially the reason why I love network maps is because they allow you to raise up those people, those voices that may not be paid any attention to because you know, their job is seen as, you know, not prestigious, or they look different, or they speak differently, or for whatever reason, they are not paid attention to. And what network maps do is they show you very clearly who those influencers are, and we should be listening to them, because they do have, they do have disproportionate influence over the whole. So that was one. Do you want to hear another? I I mean, I actually want to hear all three. So the first, if I were to summarize what I just heard is... Mm -hmm we need to do a better job of listening to the people in which we're going to deliver value to. I guess it's, it's that rooted, but oftentimes I guess we do have an imagination of what that might look like without actually having engaged with them. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We do that all the time. Yeah. All the time. That's really good. Yeah, there's a phrase in the um, anti-racism, equity, and inclusion world that says nothing for us without us. And Mm. I think that is a really good motto to live by, is Mm. if you're going to design something for someone, you're going to try to help someone, listen to them first and make sure that the help is going to be helpful um, and not actually get in the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would love to hear the other two, actually, because I am learning from this. So. All right. Um, so I think this actually might have been the most formative one for me. And this, it was my first job out of college. And so to give you some context, I went to Oberlin College, a very social activist school. I was part of a student cooperative 
where it was a multi-million dollar organization and we made all decisions by consensus. And I ended up being on the board, you know, making decisions about all this money. And it was a really powerful experience. And so here I am, you know, young little Maya, and I'm going off to work in a nonprofit and I'm excited, you know, finally be in the work world. And the organization I worked for was incredibly dysfunctional. It was so hierarchical. I came in, of course, at an assistant level. I was brand new out of college. There were people who would not talk. They literally would not talk to me, would not say hi, because I was at a lower level from them. And there was one gentleman who told me, if you want to talk about this issue, tell your boss to come and talk to me. I will talk to her. I will not talk to you. And so this was a moment for me, you know, first of all, little Maya's head blown, right? That adults can be dysfunctional. I sort of had this image that adults did everything well, but also around how this holding onto the hierarchy, holding onto these ideas about power are really mm. destructive because not only did it mean that people like me and there were a bunch of us at the bottom of the organization didn't have a voice, this organization was also severely diluted in that it was losing tremendous amounts of money. It was losing its membership. And yet it was acting as if everything was fine. And mm. those of us at the bottom of the organization could see it. And we were saying something, but of course, no one was listening to us. So I think this is another, another moment where that led me to, we need to not get so wrapped up in the power and privilege and benefits of being at the top of the organization that we lose track of the other voices. And that ideally, I think when organizations work best is their space for voices to be heard. Your people at your front lines of the organization, they're in direct contact with their customers. They have tremendous information that the CEO will never have. And so how do you help create lines of communication, of information flow, so that when the CEO is making decisions, they can take into account these changes that are happening in their in their customer base, you know, things that customers are wanting that otherwise this person would not know about. So, and again, that also led me to networks. Oh, wow. I mean, it makes me think, I remember one time I had as totally, it's going to sound like it doesn't even make sense in this conversation, but I remember I had learned that elephants uh, in the East when they're young are chained to trees and they're meant to work in the field. And then eventually you can wrap, like you can tie them to a tree and they will not move with, if you've tied like a piece of floss, which this beautiful, majestic, powerful animal can break Mm -hmm. free from. And that's kind of how I feel about human beings sometimes where if they're bound too tight and you know, they're not given the freedom and they keep getting beat down, like, oh, no, your idea doesn't matter. Eventually, they'll just mm-hmm. stop mm-hmm. trying. Like that little elephant at some point was trying to break free. And then eventually, when it got older, it just was like, you know what, I'm just not, I'm not mm-hmm. going to because I know I can't. And it's just yeah. sad. It's so sad, these little elephants. And I think about that sometimes with mm-hmm. us. I'm just like, in order for people to I mean, everybody says they want to bring their whole selves to work. Like that's the ideal. And everybody says that they want to be able to do their best work, what they think is correct. And Mm -hmm. that they have the autonomy and freedom to use whatever it is that they think is right. And if they're told, no, it's my way, you're just not going to get that anymore. Mm -hmm. They'll just stop. I Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, That resonates with me deeply. 
what you said. Yeah, I think you're right on in that image of the poor elephant, you know, chained to a tree. Um, And I do think that we we do that. We actually chain people to trees all the time and tell them, no, we don't want your ideas. We don't want your passion. We don't want your authentic real self because it doesn't match what we think authenticity should look like, right? Um, Right. So I think there's so many ways in which organizations can hold people back. And we're in a moment in our history where we can't do that anymore. What we're up against is too complex. It's too challenging. We need... We need everybody in and we need them to be able to be who they are and to bring their best, which and bring their best. Most of those things kind of go together. I exactly. Think, right? Exactly. If you're spending all your time thinking about, Oh, I got to stay next to my tree. Got to stay next to my tree. Right. How creative are you going to be able to be? I, I, that's how I, I think too. So what's the yep. third thing that kind of was formative for you that shaped the way that you kind of view the world and your research and your work? Yeah. So the last one has so many layers, but this was, I was working for the Potomac Electric Power Company. uh, And this was in the nineties, right as the electrical industry was uh, undergoing deregulation. So for for the first time in their entire history, well, maybe, maybe 80 years ago, they had competition, but for about 80 years, they had no competition. They were the only game in town. And so they needed to do things differently. And yet what they had is a very contentious union management relationship. And I would go in and I would talk to some of the folks in the union and they would say, I can't work with him because he called me an SOB. Mm. And I'd say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That, that sounds horrible. When did that happen? 25 years ago. So <laughs> these people had very long histories with each other and they held on to them. You know, they held on to these spurts from 25 years ago and yet they really needed to change. Mm. And this is one of those classic circumstances where you have to proceed even though you don't trust each other. And luckily, um, there was some, the head of the union was actually very forsated. He, he was an incredible person and he really saw what was coming for the industry. And so he led on the union side, on the management side. There were some very good people also who were really willing to come to the table and so what they said is, you know what, we know we don't trust each other, but we're going to work together anyway, because if we're not, we're all going to lose. That's true leadership. So it is. It really is. And it took the leadership on both sides. The leadership wow. on the management side, the leadership on the union side. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. As we wrap up, this has been such a illuminating conversation. I really appreciate you being on the show. I have one more question for you, because mm-hmm. it is the name of the podcast, Dreams with Deadlines. What's Maya's dream? My dream is that we live in a world and work in a world in which we all understand that we are deeply interconnected and that what we do influences each other and that we cannot do it alone. We need each other and we need each other to show up creative, to bring their best as we talked about. And my dream is that we all go all in together to address some of the very complex challenges that we have today that we be in it together, we work on it together, and we make it happen. Maya, I will have to say, I share the dream. Mm. I, I buy into that one. Thank you so mm. much for being on the show today. I've really appreciated our conversation. As have I. Thank you so much for the wonderful questions, for your wonderful presence, and also for the opportunity to talk about this. I've, I've had a great time. Thank you. Likewise. That's it for this episode of Dreams with Deadlines. Thanks for listening. If you liked today's episode, 
please subscribe and share. Show notes can be found on gtmhub.com radio. If you want to learn more about our product and services, head out to gtmhub.com. If you have questions that you'd like answered on the show, shoot us an email at radio at gtmhub.com. Tune in next time.